turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. If you're visiting here with us this morning, you should know that I handpicked and selected this chapter just for you. So Genesis chapter 38 um, is where we're going to be. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the tone that's been set in this place today. Thank you for the call to worship from my brother Link. Thank you for the music that was selected uh, by my brother Dennis. And Father, for the, the halting of a busy group of people to just stop and reflect and stare at the magnificent God of the universe. Father, I pray that that would be a fitting backdrop for what we're about to study. That you would blend that together in a way that, even in this moment, may be unbeknownst to me. Father, you would be honored and glorified in a batch of people who truly honor your word. We honor you, Lord. We love you, Lord. You are our God and our King, and what you say matters most. And so we're not a pile of book worshipers, but Father, we're a group of people that absolutely adore you. And so when you have had something written and preserved for us, dear God, would you give us zeal to know what's been written to us from you? So bless this time, Father. Encourage the saints. Convict where needed and um, do the work that only your, your precious spirit can do. Bless this body, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm, I've been there, I'm sure you've been there, where you're having dinner with somebody and perhaps your uh, uh, visit, visiting has been going well and uh, you've been enjoying some company and good food and then all of a sudden dessert comes out and Coffee comes out because they're saved, and they bring that to the table. And then they ask this question. So what about your family? What's your family's history? That can bring a few different uh, impressions or thoughts between your ears. It can be a great delight. I love to talk about the story of my family, the history of my family. And I was waiting. I was hoping they were going to ask, so that way I could share about this. Others, it brings absolute dread, where the first thought is, oh, I knew they were going to ask. Oh, I, I just, I can't go there. That's not really what I, and it's, there's some very big difficulties in our past, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, you know, it was great. We were born, and then we lived for a while, and then the Lord's going to take us home. Pass the coffee. <laughs> and then there's the third category of simply, well, this is going to be awkward, but here we go. And then you just unload perhaps some things that you're not proud of, you're not sure about as far as your family line, but nonetheless you unfold it. It would be very interesting, would it not, for somebody to ask the Lord Jesus Christ, so what about your family line? What's the history of your family? Well, (laughs) the Lord has, Almighty God has woven things together that nobody in a million years would have thought he would have woven together to end up with the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you at some point, sit down and read Matthew chapter 1 
and look at the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ and then just take a little side study for a number of weeks and track down some of these people. It would be an awkward dinner conversation to say the very least. Chapter 38 in Genesis is a very interesting chapter because of a few different reasons. Number one, it kind of plops in the middle of Joseph's story. you got Joseph's story, right? We started that a few weeks ago. We're trekking through, and then 38 is kind of like, just dropped right in the middle, and you go, uh, let's go back to Joseph's story. But it's a story of Judah, a brother of Joseph, and um, some very interesting pieces here. And I want you to keep in the back of your mind throughout this chapter The sovereign God is absolutely in perfect control of the doings, and this will move to that exact precise nanosecond Jesus Christ was born to Mary and Joseph. So, let us go. I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter today. It's a very involved narrative, and I don't want to bust it up into a bunch of pieces. So, verses 1 to 12, this is sin and death in the family. Verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now remember, what did we cover last week? Where'd we end? What was the last note? I'm sure you remember the last note was the grief of Jacob. Jacob was just told by his sons that his precious boy Joseph has been slaughtered by an animal and taken away. And his grief was just so intense and so deep and strong. All of the other sons and daughters came to Jacob seeking to console him and comfort him. And the scripture tells us that nobody could bring comfort to Jacob. It's just so strong and so intense and so painful that it's just like, no, to the point that he says, I will grieve until I go to Sheol. In other words, I'll be grieving over the death of Joseph till my dying day. Now remember, beloved, how would that pass, or, or better, how would that land on the ears of all of his sons and daughters? This one son, who you despise because of my favoritism, I will go to death in grief because I've lost him, even though all the rest of you are seeking to comfort me and I'm in your presence. There's a sting there to the rest of the family. Well, apparently what we see in 38 is Judah decided to leave. Um, It does not say that he left to flee watching the grief of his father. It makes a lot of sense to me, but it doesn't say that per se. But nonetheless, Judah packs up and says, I'm going to be leaving here. So if you look at verse 1, it says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So a friend he's going to go stay with, if you will. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Now, what's fascinating about that is we're never really given the the name of the wife, just who she is the daughter of. So a particular Canaanite is now taken as a wife. The language here is very interesting because it doesn't say a wife. 
Now, eventually, she is called that later. But in this text, there's a sense of urgency or flippancy in how fast he went to go see a friend, finds this woman, daughter of this particular individual, and he goes into her. Period. Makes her his wife. And the story goes so fast from moving to a friend's house, woman, and now three kids. Okay? Uh, It happens. So if you look down, verse 3, And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Ur means watcher. Watcher. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan, means strong. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. It's uncertain just what that name in particularly means. And Judah is in Chizib when she bore him, bore Shelah. And that's what we hear about these three boys. We're going to hear more in just a second. But here's this, the setting where Judah flees his father. He flees his brothers. And I say flee, it's too strong of a word. He's, he's getting away from them. And I have no doubt in my mind Perhaps some of the grief, what we're going to see in chapter 45 of this book, the grief that was in the mind and heart of Judah after what they just did to Joseph. And think about this, guys. Every single day, Judah is freshly reminded of the intensity of the pain of his father inflicted by them. Simultaneously, Joseph is enslaved somewhere in Egypt. So, brother's been sold out. He's probably being horribly beaten and treated. Dad's in absolute agony, and you'd have to be pretty doggone strong or, or hard in your heart to not have that at least prick the conscience, to be bothered a little bit in your mind and heart that, man, this, this is all a lie. We did this. And so there's a couple ways to deal with it. Judah can come to Jacob and say, Dad, Dad, we lied. Let's go find Joseph. I think he's in Egypt somewhere, possibly. Let's go find him. You can, that's A. B, you come to the brothers and go, guys, we've got to throw in on this one. This, this is not right. We've got to go talk to Dad. Come on, let's go. Or C, I'm out of here. And so he leaves. So Judah leaves. He takes this woman. And now he has three sons by this woman. Buckle up. Verse 6, and Judah took a wife for Ur. This is a very common practice. We've seen this throughout the book of Genesis where the father selects a bride for his sons. Please notice that Jacob had not selected any bride for Judah. Judah, as he flees, he goes and finds his own wife. Jacob is not really in a place where he's going to go out wife searching with the great grief that he's going through in reference to Joseph. So Judah flees or leaves, and now Judah has found a wife, and now Judah's going to do this the right way. I will find a wife for Ur. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was, a wick, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now you're reading this right. And the Lord put him to death. Now, Let that sit. Let that rest on you for just a second, what that passage says. Because the God of the universe, quite often, too often, way too often, is pictured as borderline a kind of powerful Santa. And when we come to the Scripture, this is why when when Link was reading those and what Brother Mitch gave last week is just 
We need to hear that more often because, you guys, we are consistently bombarded by a false god when this world, and sometimes this world, under the guise of Christians, come and tell us who God is, and it's so miles away from what the Bible says about it. Just, just miles away from who God really is. The classic statement of, I don't care for the God of the Old Testament, I like the God of the New Testament. Read Acts 5 about Ananias and Sapphira, and come back and we'll visit. But here, in chapter 38, we are told, in the eyes of Almighty God, Ur is a wicked man. Now, at one point, come on, theologically, we all got to ask the question, well, wait a second, who's not wicked? Okay, well, they all are. But there's something particular about Ur before Almighty God that he strikes him dead. It doesn't say necessarily he gave him a disease. We're given no means that the Lord used to take his life. We're just told crystal clear that the source of this guy's dying is Almighty God. And here's where all of us have to at some point wrestle with what we see in the Bible is, is that fair? You take it up with the Lord. I don't know. I mean, I do know, but you take it up with the Lord. He is absolutely just. He's absolutely fair. See, this is the interesting part we mess up in our theology, is we think that we're a bunch of people that are worthy of the grace of God. Well, then it wouldn't be grace. You're worthy of wrath. I'm worthy of wrath. You don't receive wrath because this glorious God is gracious. So when the Lord gives judgment for sin, he's doing exactly what is just. And so Ur is destroyed by God. That's not some fire brimstone preacher. It's in the ink. And if you missed it, it's coming again. So look down at your Bible. Then Judas said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Now, this was a common practice and a practice that was eventually put into law that if this brother died, then the next brother would then take his place for the goal of continuing the line of his older brother. So this child would still be known as the son of Ur, but it would come through the brother-in-law. It would come through, um, through Onan to Tamar, or with Tamar. That means the inheritance of Ur would be given to this child. And Onan is simply a man that is taking up a role that is a very difficult role. This isn't his wife. This is his brother's wife. This isn't my child. It's my brother's child. And I am stripped of my first son, technically my first son. And so Onan apparently gave the impression that he was fulfilling this duty, but in the intimacy with Tamar was not. It was completely dishonoring to Tamar, dishonoring to his brother, dishonoring to his family, and dishonoring to the Lord. And so God Almighty saw what was being done by this man, and he struck him down dead also. Now, 
Beloved, I can't press this note hard enough because it is so treated like it doesn't exist that God is the one who is sovereignly in charge of all things, who is wholly just, and we are an undeserving people. The gospel oftentimes gets presented in a way that makes it almost sound like the Lord owes us salvation. He owes you wrath. And so when we are confronted with the Bible, and the Bible tells us what God is like, who he is as a just God, it confronts some of our training that we may have received from bad Bible teaching. Is he gracious and loving? Of course. But that doesn't, that's not done in spite of his justice. See, this is the, what, what Link was giving this morning in the call to worship is that what's amazing about our Lord is that he is absolutely perfectly blended. All of those fit perfectly together and come from him where you may meet a man, a mere man or a mere woman, and you go, they're very loving. Or you meet somebody else and you say, they seem to be very, a very just kind of person. Meet another person and you say, they're, 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 um, you know, they're a very merciful type of person. God is absolutely perfect in sync, every aspect about him. And so it's not that, oh, in this moment God's mad, but he'll be kind later. That's ridiculous in, in, in speaking about the Lord. He is absolutely, perfectly balanced. Those attributes flow from him perfectly. And so God in his justice takes another husband of Tamar and another son of Judah. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Now he tells us why. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Really quick, just for Tamar's sake. Is there anything said about Tamar's sin in reference to the two brothers being killed? Nada. Nothing. So my question to Judah is, Judah, I'm just curious, why are you getting rid of the wife when it's actually the two boys that are the ones that the Lord took out? Not only that, how come Tamar isn't dead? So it's fascinating to me that Judah, in his mind, is, then let's remove Tamar. This girl's bad luck for my sons, obviously, so you leave, and we'll let Shayla grow up, and eventually you'll get married, but actually, they're not going to. I just find it so fascinating that by his deduction, Tamar is bad trouble for his son, so she's removed. I want you to go and remain a widow. I want you to remain a widow at your father's home. Now, he lies to her. He's going to say that later in this chapter. He's, he's, he's going to withhold Shayla from her. Now, in this, in this time in history, beloved, that aspect of being a mother and having sons was absolutely vitally important for her own care. So Judah sends her home to go be with her father, so at least she's cared for. But he's going to withhold this ability uh, and Shayla's rightful role to take that place. Really quick, just jot this down, okay? Deuteronomy 25 and Matthew 22:24. 24. 
both of these passages speak to this concept of this marriage where the brother-in-law comes. Remember where the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, one man married a woman, then he died. Another man, his brother married a woman, and he died. Another man married... Who will she be married to in the resurrection? Remember, they tried to trip up Jesus. And Jesus' response was, you don't know the scriptures, which always went over really well with the scribes and Pharisees. You don't know the scriptures. There is no marriage given. No marriage in heaven is what, is what Jesus teaches there. But do you see that this principle of the brother-in-law coming after the other brother, this is throughout the history of this people group. So much so that Jesus didn't say, that's ridiculous. The brother-in-law wouldn't take his place. No, he didn't, he didn't say that at all. This is in this line of people. This is what they did. It was a practice. So just kind of a side note on that one. All right. So Judah sends away Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and she can remain in her father's house. Now look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, again, fascinating, no name for the woman, Shua's daughter died. Fairly young age. We don't know how. We don't know why. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself, herself up and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up she had not been given to him in marriage. Now, the title of this chunk that we're covering is A Perverse Encounter. And it's perverse on numerous uh, accounts or different angles coming to it makes us absolutely wrong, weird, okay? Um, so verses, verses 13 to 23 is what we're looking at now. So Tamar is told, your father's going up. We know that... that uh, Jacob, or rather Judah now, has compounded grief. Think about this, you guys. Everything connected to Joseph, the horrific grief of his father. He mourned the death of one son. He mourned the death of another son. He sent away this woman that he handpicked for his son. And then his wife dies. Hit after hit after hit after hit. I know that as you read through this chapter, it's hard to really be uh, feeling sympathy for the man, but that is a lot of grief that's compounded on Judah. And so we're told in the, in the Word of God that as he was comforted in all this grief, he decides to go back where the sheep shearing is going on. By the way, this afternoon after lunch, I want you to say sheep shearing 10 times as fast as you can and... and uh, Record it on your phone and send it to Mitch. All right. So Tamar is then told by somebody, your father-in-law is heading up there. He's going to go where the sheep shearing is taking place. And um, he's been comforted in his grief. Tamar's aware that um, it's been some years, and I'm still a widow, and I still live here with my dad. And this man who selected me for his oldest son lied to me. He actually now has um, been absolutely uh, dishonest with me and withholding the third son who is rightfully my spouse to be. This is as good as a betrothal, by the way. This is not just a mere, oh, I hope someday Shayla comes knocking. This is a betrothal. It was this son, then this son, well, Shayla, 
Um, I wonder who I'm going to marry when I grow up. Your brother's, your dead brother's wife is who you're going to marry when you grow up. But Judah has stopped this and has withheld this son from this woman, all right? Don't worry. It gets a lot weirder. Look down at your Bible. <clears throat> she took off, verse 14, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had been, I'm sorry, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, okay, so she's dressed differently, she's wearing a veil over her face, she's at a particular location that would give every impression that this is a prostitute. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. It's complicated, okay? She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock, which would be like currency of the day. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. The, the shrewdness here is impressive. I'll write you an IOU. Mm-mm. Nope, nope, I want you to give me a pledge. Something that will be definite that I will be paid. He said, verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff and your social security card that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So this signet would be so utterly personal. It's actually, they would hand carve them. So this is something very particular. That's why I say uh, social security, because it'd be as good as. It's like, um, leave your ID at the front desk, so that way if we find anything missing in the room, we can charge it, right? That's the idea here. I want to have something that identifies to you, so that way this will be returned to me. There's kind of a cord that he would hold around his neck, wrap around his neck with a signet on the end of the cord, and this is what she says, leave this here with me, so I can identify you later. And in the heat of that moment, he immediately does it. Judah is in sexual sin, struggling with all the grief of his life and the loss of his wife, and gives in to this sexual sin. He just did not know the intensity and the gravity of the sexual sin he's taking place in here. Verse 19. Then he arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, notice he didn't go himself. How embarrassing. So he sends his friend to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, this shows what was the thought process of, of uh, Judah, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Now listen to Judah. And Judah replied, let her keep the things for her own, or we shall be laughed at. 
You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Now, here's, the, here's one of the dramatic climaxes in my thinking as far as the text. At this point, Judah is free. It's concealed. It's done away with. Not only do I have Tamar over at Dad's house, I don't have to deal with her. The bad luck charm is gone. We'll figure out some other woman for Shayla. I buried my wife. I went to a cult prostitute, committing sexual sin with her. I gave her something. She's going to give it back. They can't find her. She can keep it as long as nobody knows, so that way I'm not laughed at, and the whole thing is concealed. Nobody will ever know. I'm going to return to that thought at the end of this message, so let's, let's go back to the storyline. <clears throat> so, he returned to Judah, I'm sorry, um, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, well, I'm a sinner too, and I've sexually sinned, so let's have some grace for her. Bring her out, and let her be burned. Now, beloved, consider, consider the factors, okay? You, you've got to put yourself in the sandals here and, figure, and think about the factors here. This woman was hand-selected. She married a man. The man was a wicked man. God took him. The brother comes in. The brother does not fulfill his vow. So, no child. Then he dies. The father who selected her tries to put her away quietly and then ignores her year after year after year. Yeah, you'll marry Shayla. When? In the right time. And then it turns out that she comes out and and just from Judah's perspective, without Judah ever even knowing that he is the father, if you will, his immediate reaction to her sexual sin is death. I want her dead now. I mean, that's, that's the language here. Let her come out and be burned. Done. Done. Sexual sin, not on my watch. My boy Shayla deserves better than this. Now, some folks threw some motives in there. It doesn't say it in the text. I want to be very careful with that, okay? But... There is, it does cause me to think that maybe he saw this will be a very easy way to deal with her. Because he's been lying to her the whole time, right? So how can I ease my conscience? <gasps> she was sexually sinful. Done. Let her be burned. Everything's clear. But there's another piece to this, you guys. I just want you to... A, a truth that I've noticed, and it's clear in Scripture... We usually, um, how do I put this? Our sin usually looks the worst on others. Typically, we're fast to give grace to those that sin in a way that's not our particular sin we may struggle with. But when we're not repentant, we're walking in a lack of repentance, Often, people will, we will publicly make a large spectacle about our distaste for that particular sin 
to try to ease our conviction in reference to that sin. So why would we be caught off guard for Judah's immediate response, who has been in sexual sin, to hear say, let her be burned for her sexual sin? Remember the storyline with David? David is out on his porch, and he looks down, and he sees a young lady who's bathing. And he says, bring her up. And he, he sleeps with this woman. She conceives by him. He does everything he can to try to arrange it so that way her husband Uriah comes and you, you, you go home. And he wants her, him to go home and sleep with her so that way he can come away and say, hey, we've produced a child. And David can say, that's great, and conceal everything. Remember that? Uriah refuses because he's a good man, a solid man. He says, no, I'm going to stay by the door. I'm going to continue my guard, David. David then instructs to put this guy in the front line so that way he'll be slaughtered first and nobody will know. It won't be public. Just between me and God. And Uriah is murdered. Nathan the prophet comes before David and he says, David, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about this particular man where he had everything he could have ever wanted. And then there was this other man, he showed up and he had this particular sheep. He loved this sheep, he raised this sheep, just treated it like a baby, like his own little child. And then after he brought that, that sheep, this man who had everything took that sheep from that man. You remember David's response? Let this man be dealt with harshly for what he's done. And Nathan with, one of the most, Nathan, with one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible, behold, you are the man. You thought you'd hide, didn't you? You thought you'd get away with it. Nobody's ever going to know. It's just between me and God. God will not allow that. For you, Christian, he loves you too much to allow that. And so let's see what happens with Judah. He says, let her be burned. Verse 25, and she was being brought out. She went out, she went or sent word to her father-in-law. Listen to this. This woman is very shrewd. By the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. I wonder, I just wonder you guys in that moment if she thought signet, cord. I don't know. But just the list of the items, pretty uncanny, is it not? Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I. Guys, that is a mouthful, a profound statement. Because what else could he have said, right? What, What do liars do? They lie to hide a lie. So he could have said, those aren't mine. Um, which wouldn't have worked anyway, because then you bring this insignia and go, yeah, that's yours. But it's deeper than that, beloved. It's deeper than that. What he does is his immediate response is, she's more righteous than I. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be made rich. They shall be comforted. There's a poverty of spirit in this man's response to what he says here in the text. Look down at your Bible. 
<laughs> Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. You see the immediacy of where his mind goes? The Lord put his hand on that sin in his mind. And he did not know her again. In other words, he didn't touch her ever again after what took place here. In that moment, God made public that which Judah had planned so carefully to always be a secret. Nobody will ever know. And the Lord, in his grace, let everybody know. Now, what do I mean by that? Not only the people here, but do you realize that through the centuries of church history, everybody has read about this secret sin that Judah thought he was concealing? Every single Christian who has read this passage of Scripture throughout the entire church history time and all the people that heard this story all through the history, this was made public before their eye. A man who thought he could conceal this sin from everybody, everybody knows about it. All right, moving on. 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. We've seen this before. (laughs) And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, why'd your mom pick that name? Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And they all lived happily ever after. Tamar's twins, you see that the union between Judah and Tamar produced twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Zerah came out first, then retreated, scarlet thread wrapped around his hand, and then Perez came out first. All right, you guys, so there's a story, okay? When I say story, I mean absolute narrative, true history, okay? So here's the question. This is the question I chew on, and I'm sure maybe you are right at this moment. Dan, really quick. Could you apply that to my life? (laughs) I dare you. I dare you. Okay. Let 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 me do my best attempt, okay? Three points just to consider. What a nasty story. In what ways could this story possibly relate to Dan Mason in 2023? Well, one of them I've hit hard, and I'll just hit one more time. God will not be mocked by concealed sin and hypocrisy. He loves you way too much to let you get away with it. I say you. I'm not talking down to you. I'm speaking to all of us here. That temptation of nobody will ever know. It's done in secret, and nobody can ever find out about this, and I will work hard to conceal this sin to keep it from everybody. Let me just remind you, in those quiet moments where nobody else is around, the sovereign of the universe hasn't gone anywhere. He remains present. He knows everything going on. And I recognize, beloved, that at times it's almost, it almost feels easier 
to hide it from other people and not God. Because, you know, I'm I'm saved and, and the Lord has forgiven me, and so I can just continue in this concealed sin and hide it. And God, you know, what happens is His voice, His word gets dampened. And the relationship is harsh. It's like a husband saying, oh, I know that I've really, truly offended my wife, but we're we're still married. We're still married. You know, it's fine. She won't talk to me, and I don't want to talk to her, but we're, we're still married. You bet. Good logic. Now, rather, beloved, as you come to this this passage, what I see is that God will not be mocked. Now, for a time, it may feel like it. Somebody got away with it. Sometimes we'll be like, oh, this is so unfair. How could that individual get away with it? Now, that's how we feel when somebody else gets away with something. When we get away with it, we say, well, I think God's being kind to me. Okay, possibly, possibly not. But I will tell you that what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 is that our God disciplines those whom he loves. And the tender heart of our God will not let you move forward in that. He will be dogged with his children. Use all kinds of different means. It may not be as public a spectacle as it was for Judah, but he loves you too much to let you do that. So some way, somehow, that private sin, if there is a private sin, and I'm not saying there's a bunch of sinless people in here by any stretch, I know that. But I also know that at times, there are, there are particular sins that we think nobody knows, we hide, they are utterly habitual. And God sovereignly knows exactly what's going on, and he won't let it go. He loves you too much. And so this is what's so interesting, is it not? This spectacle with Judah is God's grace. And did you see the man's response? more righteous than I am. That's a man speaking out of a different opinion than just a fallen man. So I want to um, just ask you to consider that, that our God will not let that concealed sin last. And if needed, he will do some incredible things to make it public some devastating things to make it public. Secondly, because after that one, you can hear that and go, thanks, Dan, for leaving me hopeless for the rest of the week. There is actually hope in this storyline of Judah. Great hope. Incredible hope. Not only Judah's reaction to what he says here in reference to his sin problem, in reference to she's more righteous than I, I was wrong. That's an ingredient going on in the life of a man where grace is active. Judah's not a perfect man by any stretch. It's crystal clear from the text. But the more we learn about Judah, and particularly in chapter 45, where uh, Joseph says he wants Benjamin, and Judah then steps in the place of Benjamin and says, no, 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 my, let me be your servant. Don't, send, don't, don't take Benjamin, take me. Which is so ironic when you think of the whole circle of 
They do this to Joseph, and then they get away with it for a little bit of time. When there's an opportunity to send Benjamin, the boys don't go, yeah, let's get rid of another younger brother. Rather, Judah goes before Joseph and pleads that Joseph, no, take me, take me. Well, beloved, that's a sign again that there's grace active in this guy. He didn't drop dead after they found out about this pregnancy. It wasn't the end of the road. God didn't just, it wasn't just done in that moment like it was with his two boys. Rather, God has grace that he's going to continue to accomplish in the life of Judah. And you'll see the works that come out of his life that reflect that. But I got to tell you, one of the biggest ingredients that makes me think that there's grace in this man's life is that when a man or a woman is confronted with their secret sin and their immediate response is their lack of righteousness, something's going on there. Because that's not how the lost, sinful psyche works. The response of the unsaved is another lie on another lie on another lie. And so perhaps somebody asks you, hey, real quick, um, you know, how are you doing? And you are in a very tight spot, a difficult spot, a sinful spot. Beloved, can I just tell you from the Word of God, from this storyline itself, there's all kinds of hope for you. Jesus Christ only redeems sinful people. So if you're a sinful people, then you are a beautiful candidate for redemption. That Christ Jesus dies and redeems sinful people. And then here's the other piece. For those of us who are redeemed, those of us who are in Christ, our God in his tender father love still forgives, still works with us. He's not a dad that goes, oh, I'm so sick of this kid. I can't take this anymore. His response is, okay, we've got to figure out from here now what we're going to be further doing inside of you. We're going to continually work inside of you. So Judah, you, you messed up big time. I'm not done. I'm not done. So, no, this is not a hopeless message. But I will tell you, that path of concealing sin and trying to hide from everybody is a hopeless avenue. Rather, it is, it is time to just cut off at the roots, pull those roots up, Plead for the Lord for his forgiveness. Repent of that sin and pursue him unfettered. Do not let that sin which clings so closely weigh you down. Cut it off and leave it alone. Lastly, this moment of severe confrontation was by no means the last word for Judah. Yes. And lastly, we see God's providential working even through the sinful acts of human beings. I've hit this note the last three weeks. I hit it one more time. How much precision does the Lord have in reference to his working among people? I encourage you to read his genealogy, Matthew 1, and once again you will see Perez and then his line the line coming from Perez coming down to the Lord Jesus. Remember whose hand came out first? Not Perez, 
Scarlet Thread, back in, Perez. Now we can all go, oh, well, God's really good at plan Bs. No, he's not. He doesn't do that. Our God is sovereignly at work even in a breach of twins to accomplish his good purpose to ultimately come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, I got I to gotta tell you, the more I'm studying narrative, okay, the more I study Old Testament narrative, the more I have come away saying, God, I'm sorry. I, I repent. I apologize for thinking that you were vague in anything. He is so meticulous, beloved, unbelievably meticulous in what he's doing. And so through this very odd union... The line of Jesus Christ continues on with some very interesting characters. Be very careful ever telling God what he can't use to accomplish his good purpose in the unfolding of history. Let us put our hands over our mouths if we ever say, God couldn't use this. One word. Tamar. (laughs) Tamar. Our God is a God of incredible detail. Tamar's delivery And Christ's line is abundant evidence of the meticulous providential care of God and the unfolding of human history. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of PCBC. Uh, 